Good morning, Crossroads. My name's Tim Bassett, and I'm a former resident pastor here at Crossroads. I just finished up my residency this spring. And uh, yeah, thank you. Before we get rolling today, I just want to take a minute to say thank you. Uh, I probably said it a million times to the staff, but I want to say it to all of you. Uh, This church is such an amazing church to be able to come out of seminary and step in and just, I mean, I don't know how many prayers and, and words of encouragement and support my wife and I and our kids have gotten from the body here at Crossroads. So to all of you, thank you so much for the last two years. You have played such a major role in what God has been up to in and through my wife and I in this season of life. So thanks a lot. Keep it up. Keep it up. There's a lot more residents to come. Every year you get a new one. The Lord's led us now into a season uh, we didn't quite expect, but we're we're really excited about. It's a season of bivocational ministry. Uh, I'm a spiritual director now at a local counseling practice, uh, and I'm also in the landscape industry. So there you go. Never knew. And on top of that, we just get to, I mean, this is just the icing on the cake. Um, We thought maybe we wouldn't be in Grand Rapids this time, uh, this summer, but we get to stick around. So we get to stay invested here in Grand Rapids, here at uh, Crossroads, and uh, hang out with you guys some more. So thanks a lot. We're glad to to be around. And it means when Rod is in Turkey, he might call me to preach. So here we are. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35 this morning. It's going to be a bit of a long introduction. I want to set kind of the groundwork for what we're going to talk about. I want to tell you the why behind the what. It was an open text opportunity for me today, and I chose the text. And I want to give you a story about the why. Heads up in advance, I'm not sharing this story for shock value. I'm sharing it because it's just where my wife and I have been at and what God has been doing in our hearts through it. And that's why I'm so motivated to share this text today. Uh, And I think it's applicable to the world that we live in and the call that Rod gave us last week to be the church today, to take that baton, right, from the early church and to step into our culture uh, unashamed and to be the light of Christ. So with that, uh, bear with me in the long introduction, but here's why when I was asked to preach, I chose this passage. I chose it because it has crushed me in, in profoundly impacted my life recently in the last year. And actually, let me back up just a second. Before I tell you the story, let's lay that groundwork. The main thing that we're going to be talking about this morning is forgiveness. Forgiveness and mercy are oftentimes used interchangeably. uh, And I'll do a little bit of that today. But uh, forgiveness is an act of offering God's mercy to sinners if we're getting really specific. Uh, For kind of a working definition of what forgiveness is, I just want to throw this out there for you to consider. Forgiveness is the act of laying down our desire to punish someone who has hurt us in order that we can pick up and offer the mercy of God instead. There's two parts in there. Forgiveness, full forgiveness, according to what Jesus says from the heart, is forgiveness where we lay down punishment which is our instinct as sinful, broken people, lay down our our instinct to punish and pick up the mercy of God to offer it to others. 
There's many versions of forgiveness out there in the world and sadly in the church today. But in our passage this morning, Jesus makes a clear distinction between what he says is forgiveness and what the world says about it. His distinction is found in verse 35. We'll eventually get there. When he says, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We're going to be talking about two different ways uh, to forgive that are found in the world. And we're going to contrast them to this idea of forgiveness, forgiveness from the heart. If you're familiar with Dr. Larry Crabb, he has a great way of looking at this text and kind of breaking down these versions of forgiveness. And he describes forgiveness from the heart as complete forgiveness. I'll talk to you a little bit about the three different versions we see in the world. One is unforgiveness. There's the absence of forgiveness. We get hurt by someone who sins against us in our hearts. We, we demand that they either apologize or pay, and we take matters into our own hands to make sure that they do in many different ways, right? That's unforgiveness. And we also have partial forgiveness, this lip service forgiveness, this forgiveness that we drum up or conjure up out of our own well of goodness. And we say, no, it's, it's, it's okay. And ignore the hurt that happened in our heart so that on the outside, we look like a good little Christian. We did the right thing, we forgave, but in our hearts, we're still, our hearts are still demanding apology or payment. And then we're gonna unpack the good stuff, complete forgiveness and what that looks like. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Do you know if you forgive from the heart? Are you a person who forgives others from your heart? Or is it a passage that we, like me, have kind of just like glossed over, read it, taken some things from it and just kind of skipped that phrase? What does that mean? I think now more than ever, because of the culture of vengeance that we live in today, Christians need to know how to do this. We need to know what this is. We need to become more and more a people who have the capacity to be hurt and to know what to do with that hurt that comes from being sinned against so that we can offer God's mercy to others instead of punishing them. How much do we punish each other? Maybe not outwardly, but some of us hang on to it for years and years. I've been a Christian for most of my life, but it wasn't until uh, recently that I discovered in a really crushing and humiliating way that I've been living the life of the unforgiving servant. My wife and I just entered into our eighth year of marriage. I, I embarrassed her at the nine o'clock and I had her, asked her to stand up and wave and she didn't like that too much, but uh, she's my best friend. She's my partner in life and I wanna tell you right now, there's a number of you who know her well. You wanna see an example of someone who fights for their marriage. Spend some time with my wife. I'm so grateful that she's stuck with me for eight and I hope we get 80, 100 together on this earth. We've never had a stronger, healthier marriage than we do now, but the last eight years has really been a challenge for us. I've shared some of the things uh, before. Sometimes I tend to be over vulnerable sometimes, but here we go again. The first five years of our marriage, Shayla and I were two ships in the night. 
uh, I was working for a, a nonprofit. I was a camp director, traveling for four months out of the year. And then after that was done, you know, we had a baby. I went to seminary. At one point, I was working 55 hours a week at a job. I was going to school full time. I was interning at the church. Shayla's working in the medical field. We're having baby number two. I lost both my parents. All this stuff, we're moving, we're trying to pay the bills. And as you can imagine, life in those early years of marriage is hard enough as it is. You get all that outside extra stuff. We were not loving each other well. We weren't doing, or we weren't taking the time to empathize with one another, to hear each other's hearts, to communicate with one another. Instead, what it was was just these little engagements in passing that tend to be more, tended to be more hurtful than, than loving. Nothing egregious, just the little stuff. A tone here, a lack of empathy there. I'd get frustrated if I needed to make a quick decision and we had like an, an hour in between the kids just going to bed and me needing to do seminary homework and like, we just gotta land the plane and I don't want you to have thoughts about it, let's just do this. And all these little, whether they were actual or perceived sins, were just building up in both of our hearts. We'd give lip service forgiveness. Of course, if you asked us, we were forgiving each other, we'd say, yeah, we're Christians. Of course we are. But in our hearts, we were harboring bitterness, me most of all. I was saying it's no big deal, but I was demanding in my heart for an apology or for punishment. I remember the day about five years ago that I hit rock bottom. I, t I totally checked out on any effort to stay invested. Um, we had an argument and I was exhausted. I had stopped going to grief counseling for the loss of my parents. I was burned out with marriage counseling. Um, I was kind of living into and learning the demands of, of ministry and uh, I just was done. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. I was just burned out. Thanks, man. And I had a friend tell me that I was acting different. It was the first time I had like, I, wasn't, I didn't fully snap out of it there, but I had a moment where I'm like, whoa, something's up. A buddy of mine told me that uh, he always knew me as the guy who wanted to go deep, who had the capacity to have deep conversations and long for them, entered into them all the time. But lately I was avoiding anything of depth. He said, I just seemed like a different person. And it was true. I was avoiding anything of depth. I was avoiding, here's what it comes down to, God himself. I didn't want to deal with everything that was going on. I knew I wasn't in a healthy place, but I just, I didn't want to talk to God about it. I was avoiding him. And at my worst, guys, and I said this at the first service, kind of hoping for a crowd about the size of 4th of July weekend. Um, uh, at my worst, when I wanted nothing to do with any potential for a heavy conversation or an argument or whatever, I would come home, I'd grab a bottle of wine, I'd go to the basement, I'd watch ESPN, and I would just disappear. I was at my end. I started stuffing, numbing, coping. But God wasn't going to leave me in that place. God was willing to do what it took 
to make sure I didn't stay there. Shayla and I have been blessed with some amazing relationships here. Uh, many of them are with staff and with the elders. And over the course of a series of events, word kind of got out to Rod and Steve that Shayla and I were in a rough spot. And, and I knew when that happened, I couldn't just leave it at that. I had a buddy who, who tells me all the time, he says, Tim, the worst thing about human sinfulness is that when we're caught with our pants down, we try to just keep our shirt on. Like, <laughs> keep a little bit of pride. He said, make a practice of taking that off too. And so uh, in that moment, I just laid out, not only is my marriage in a rough spot, I am at rock bottom personally. And at an elder meeting in snot and tears, I confessed all my sin to a room full of grown men leading, leading this church. It was awesome. <laughs> it was the most humiliating moment of my life. But three things happened almost simultaneously in this moment, guys. The first is that I felt the overwhelming mercy of God surround me. I knew it. It was like he grabbed me by the face and he said, I forgive you. I've seen it all and I've been here the whole time. I forgive you. And another thing happened. I experienced the mercy of God through the people of God. That room your leadership looked me in the eyes and said, we love you. We love you in Shayla. We're not going anywhere. We're here for you. I didn't get punishment. I didn't get contempt. I didn't get judgment. I didn't get swept under the rug. I got love and mercy from the elders of this church and the leadership in a way I've never experienced before. I mean, it's kind of a young pastor's worst nightmare I just went through, right? Last year, this church has just been so amazing. And the third thing that happened is I immediately, the scripture that came to mind was this story. I had been living the life of the unmerciful or unforgiving servant. I had been forgiven so much by God and I was being stingy with mercy and forgiveness to my wife. I don't want to be that person. We can't be that person. We can't be those people. The bitterness that I had allowed to pile up in my heart toward my wife over all these little things, some perceived, some actual uh, hurts, had, had nearly destroyed my marriage. And I'm sharing this, again, not for the shock value, but because I believe we live in a world full of hurt. We live in a world where you will walk outside these doors today and you'll be sinned against, right? You probably hurt someone on your way into church this morning. We're sinful, broken people and this happens and it's not justifiable, it's, a, it's a, something God wants to solve in this world and he will. But while we're in it, we have to, have to, have to learn to be a people who can be hurt can be sinned against and have the capacity to offer mercy. I'm not the only one, and this isn't for married people, who face this. I was talking with a friend of mine this weekend. He said that when he was four, his dad left 
And for 15 years, he had no idea why. And at 19 years old, his dad shows up back at the front door and wants a relationship. What does forgiveness look like in a relationship like that? I talked to a, a young dude a couple of weeks ago uh, who has an alcoholic mother and she was in a spot and she said the words, you're not my son, kicked him out the door. And he said, I, she's, she just wasn't in a good place and whatever. I'm like, yeah, that, oh. you know, you mourn with him in the moment, but those words hurt. What does forgiveness look like? It can't just be, she was in a bad place, I, you know, forgive her. There's got to be something deeper, something more. We live in a world that abounds in sin. So the question, the question I want you to be thinking about as we read the text this morning, what do you do when you're hurt? What do you do when you're sinned against? We're going to run up into this verse, verse 28. I'm starting to call these Matthew 18, 18, 28 moments in our lives where we come face to face with someone who owes us a debt. What do we do? Church, we can't be people who boast in the mercy and forgiveness of God and be stingy with it to others. We can't be people who refuse to forgive or who offer partial lip service forgiveness. I believe that over the course of the next few years, as sin and hurt increase in our world, what Christians do when they get hurt will determine in a huge way what the world comes to know about the heart of God. What we do when we get hurt will determine what those around us come to understand about how God views and acts towards sinners. Will we show them God's mercy that he's lavished on us? Or will we be like the world and punish and demand payment. Please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay the master, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay back what I owe. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. 
This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. So Peter asked this question in verse 18 about how many times Jesus expects his followers to forgive others who sin against them. It's like Peter understands this is going to be costly or something. Jesus responds in classic Jesus fashion by telling them a story. We don't necessarily have a perfect parallel to the context of this story in our modern day, but Jesus is using a story that his listeners would understand and follow. The master in this story is likely a Gentile king with incredible wealth, and he's settling accounts with his provincial satraps or money farmers. The servants in the parable aren't shackled slaves, they're wealthy, largely independent men who invest the king's monies collect income and debts and other money for the king while taking a percentage off the top for their efforts. In these sorts of relationships, the worst thing that could ever happen to someone of this status, these, these servants, would be to show up on account settling day and not being able to pay up. If he couldn't pay, it not only meant being caught in a humiliating situation for someone of that status, but also that he and possibly his family could be in big trouble. More likely than not, servants who couldn't pay were either tortured, a Roman practice, under the assumption that the money must be somewhere and they were lying, or thrown into prison as an indentured servant working grueling labor for minimal pay until the debt was paid off. If it was an egregious debt, a huge debt, they would enslave the family to contribute to the effort to pay it off. Gentile kings loved their money. It wasn't common for them to release debts or even give more time to a servant to pay up. Prison instead of torture would have been considered a merciful decision for for a master in this time. But this is where the parable starts to get a little unusual. For the listeners in this day, for the disciples of Jesus, as they hear this story, what happens next, they would be stunned. What does this master do? This master is an unusual master. He has compassion on his servant. In fact, the master not only responds with compassion to the request for more time, he flat out covers the debt. The Greek word there uh, is called apoluo, and it sometimes is translated loosed or canceled. It's actually the same term used in what happens in divorce. It has legal connotation and is essentially meaning that he's detached this debt from the man's name entirely. It's no longer associated with him. This is absolutely absurd. What's even crazier is the amount of debt that this servant has. You've probably heard this before, but just quickly, a daily wage for a Palestinian worker at this time was one denarii. There are roughly 6,000 denarii in a talent. How much did Jesus say this person's debt was? 10,000 talents. Do the math. This servant owes the master 60 million days wages. 
Some translations offer readers all sorts of modern parallels to help understand the exact number and exact amount of this debt. But if we focus on that too much, we can miss Jesus' skillful use of hyperbole. He intentionally pairs the largest Roman numeral at the time, 10,000, with the largest unit of currency, a talent. Jesus is trying to say to his disciples that the debt is the largest number they could ever come up with in their language. It's not about the exact number. It's about all the numbers, any number you could think of, in fact, that his listeners could come up with. It's like my six-year-old trying to tell me he loves me at night. Dad, I love you a trillion, gazillion, babillion, dadillion, infinity million, Dad. It's not about the number. I get the point. The point is, when we look at our debt, come up with the largest number you can possibly come up with, and this kind of master can forgive it all every single time. Jesus is illustrating for us the mercy of God towards sinners. And in verse 21, he says, I say not seven times, but 70 times seven, or 77 times. He's contrasting the mercy of God to the way of the world. And he references Genesis 4 to describe what the world is like. That phrase, 70 times 7, is coming right out of Genesis 4. He's thinking of a man called Lamech. Lamech was from the line of Cain, and he may have been the worst human being on the planet up to this point in human history. He prided himself on being someone you shouldn't mess with. He bragged about his wrath and vengeance. He dared people to mess with him so that they could find out what Lamech does to someone who sins against him. Genesis 4, 23 and 24 says, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Jesus is saying to his disciples in this parallel that he has come as the antithesis to Lamech. He says where the spirit of Lamech makes people pay severely for any offense, Jesus seeks to offer mercy. Where Lamech refuses to tolerate even a single sin done against him, the Lord's mercy towards sinners is endless. Is there a limit to God's mercy? Why would Jesus use such an illustration of mercilessness to contrast to his mercy if he was just trying to land somewhere in the middle? Guys, my mercy is like somewhere right here, but there, no. It's the antithesis, it's the opposite, it is endless. And some of us this morning need to hear this incredible news that no matter how sinful you are, no matter how far you've fallen, from God, there is no amount of sin too large for the mercy of God to cover. If that's you this morning and you're overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, praise God he's brought you to that point. There's a place you can go. It's to the feet of Jesus. And there's people who would love to pray for you after the service. Don't miss out on the opportunity to be reminded of or maybe hear for the first time the extravagant mercy of God offered to you. And if you're online this morning and you're in that place, email the church. We'd love to connect you with someone who can tell you about the extravagant mercy of God.
For others of us, and I put myself in this category at times, we aren't as overwhelmed by or moved by God's mercy as we used to be. Have any of us forgotten how desperately we need mercy? I think the gravitational pull of self-reliance, which is a product of our pride in our hearts, is always drawing us away from the reality that we need God's mercy. I even remember, I, I remember being a kid and kneeling on my bed and saying this silly little prayer, like I would always be asking Jesus, like, sorry, forgive me for my sins. I'll do better tomorrow. Right? And then I get up in the morning, you know, and try it again, but it's always kind of a similar prayer, like, I'll do better tomorrow. I think I believed, and I don't think it's just kids, I think we have a more complicated version of it when we become adults, but we do think that we can pay our debt. Don't we? We're always trying to prove it. God, look at me, I'm better now. Look at me. But the reality is, we gotta look at this passage in that moment where the unforgiving servant, he doesn't just like say, he doesn't ask the master for forgiveness, does he? He says, he asks for time. Time to pay it back. This guy thinks he can pay back 60 million days worth of wages. Talk about losing sight of your need for mercy. And none of us are any different. We all have a debt of sin worthy of death. All have fallen sin. Fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we forget how much it costs for our sins to be forgiven and how incredibly merciful God has been to us to offer his son as a sacrifice for our sins, then we'll never be moved to compassion to those who, like us, desperately need God's mercy. For me, it took my marriage getting to a really bad place to come back to this place where I realized my need for the mercy of God. And like the servant in the parable, it was humiliating. But now I can see that it was God's love for me that led me to this place. It's God's severe mercy, an act of love and kindness that had to happen to me in order to humble me and change my heart. God loves us enough to do this, guys. He loves us enough that if we lose track of his, his warning to not forget his mercy. He says it to Israel when they enter into the promised land, into Canaan. Don't forget me. When you have everything that you need, when life's going good, don't become self-reliant. Remember I got you here. But if we don't heed that warning, he's so loving that he'll bring us low. Humility or humiliation, they both can come from God. Even if, our forget, even if we're forgetful, God remains merciful. He remains merciful. He never changes. He's so patient with us. Why is God so patient and merciful? You ever ask yourself that? Like, man, your mercies are new every morning? Are you kidding? Lord, why do you not give up on me? Jesus tells us why. In verse 27, it says that when the servant pleaded with him, the master had compassion on him. That word in the Greek translated compassion is the word spagnizomai. It's really fun to say. 
It means to be moved as to one's bowels. I won't forget that, hey? The bowels in this culture were understood as the place of deepest love and pity. We have a sort of modern parallel to this when we say the phrase, spill your guts. It means to share what you're really thinking deep down inside. But what does this word spagnizomai tell us about why God shows us mercy? It tells us that the God of the universe loves us deep down in his guts. Deep down in the depths of his being, it's us who he longs for. Us who he's concerned about. Us who he loves more than anything else in this world. It's sinners who God loses sleep over if he were ever to need sleep. It's you and me who move the God of the universe deep down in his guts. Let that sink in this morning. God shows us mercy because he loves us. When's the last time you got away, practiced some solitude, and just thought about the mercy of God, how much God loves you? I was on the Manistee River Trail with uh, uh, the men from Crossroads on a men's retreat this weekend. I snuck back to do this. And uh, Sunday or Saturday morning, we were sitting at the campfire and a friend of mine, Brett, said, when I'm around other people and I start feeling insecure and I start needing their affirmation or acceptance, uh, it's like a check engine light going on inside of me, telling me I'm running low on time with Jesus. I love that analogy because it's true. When we don't spend enough time alone with Jesus, meditating on his word and having conversations with him through prayer and receiving from God words of affirmation and words about our identity and our purpose as beloved sons and daughters of God, we will demand that affirmation from those around us. We'll grasp for it. We'll grasp and demand and hold others accountable for our security and our satisfaction Matthew 18, 28 shows us the servant in this story is demanding that the fellow servant pay up. And it's just a small debt. But he needs it, doesn't he? I think this is a major reason why so many of us feel hurt by others. We feel we need people to do things, to give us something that our heart is longing for. We need our friend to reciprocate our efforts to prioritize the friendship. We need our boss to affirm our work ethic. We need that coworker to stop talking about politics. We need our spouse to respect us, affirm us, empathize with us, or any number of things that we put on our spouse. And if they don't give it to us, we go for the throat. Just like the unmerciful servant, maybe not outwardly, but our hearts always do. We share this passage regularly at Crossroads. James chapter four, it says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the desires that work within you? You do not have, so you covet and you kill. Henry Nouwen defines forgiveness as not letting someone else be God. 
not letting someone else be God. What he's saying is that forgiveness is when we let the people around us in our lives be imperfect people, people who let us down, people who may even hurt us. We let them be that. People who are sinful just like us rather than demanding that they love us perfectly like only God can. We will never be capable of offering forgiveness from our hearts until our hearts are receiving all that they need from Jesus. What does this look like though, practically? I mentioned in the beginning the three ways we forgive. Unforgiveness, again, is when we get hurt or we perceive hurt, perceive that we've been sinned against, and our hearts say, I need that person to apologize or pay, and we take matters into our own hands. We use our words or we post on social media. Partial forgiveness, so there's no forgiveness in that. Partial forgiveness is when we get hurt we're sinned against. And our hearts say the same thing again, because our hearts always will. They need to be, they need to apologize or pay. But we know we're better than that. We're going to be good Christians. So we say on the outside, I forgive you. But we never deal with the hurt that's going on in our hearts. The third, what we're going to land on today here, is complete forgiveness. Here's where what we do when we're hurt really, really matters. In complete forgiveness, when, our, when we're hurt by someone, our first response ought to be to cry out to God, to mourn our pain. The first thing our hearts feel is hurt, not anger. When we are hurt, every human heart asks this question, does anyone see what just happened to me? Dan Allender in his book, The Cry of the Soul, says, behind every human emotion is a question to God. Hurt says, God, do you see me? Anger says, God, are you going to do something about this? But the trouble is that our sinful nature causes us to bypass going to God and asking those questions, and we immediately turn towards other people do you see what you just did to me? Are you going to do anything about it? I need you to do something so that I can be okay. And I want to be sensitive here. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't need reconciliation. I'm not saying that it's not good to desire for someone to apologize. Those are good desires. But the second we make them needs, we put them at a level they don't belong. We put them above what we've been offered by Christ, That's, that, that can and does satisfy our soul. God wants us to go to him with our hurts. He's the God who collects our tears in bottles. And the Psalms are full of examples of this, of people going to God, crying out to him, even asking sometimes that those exact questions that Allender mentions, like, God, do you see me? Do you see what happened? God, are you going to do anything about it? And something that Shayla and I, my wife and I, have taken from this lesson that we, we learned is when the, when the other person hurts us or we perceive hurt, right? 
Sometimes I'm just super sensitive and she was saying something out of love and I just took it personal. But when we have those moments, when we're hurt, we learn, we've learned to stop and in our hearts say, Lord, did you see that? That really hurt. That hurt. And then we remind ourselves that while it's okay to desire for our spouse to have, have done something different and that in God's timing, we will have a discussion about it and they say, I, I wish you wouldn't talk to me like that. Maybe we could have a conversation. At the end of the day, we need to remember in that moment that I, just, I desire something, but I don't need it. And now, in that moment, it deflates the power of those emotions. It deflates it and it centers my heart towards Christ. Why would I ever run to my spouse to try to give me something like that? Like what's going on? Lord, help me to understand my heart. Give me what I need because I don't wanna betray your love. I wanna offer mercy to my friends, my family, my kids, my neighbors, my spouse. So hopefully you're, you're hearing this. There's really two parts to complete forgiveness. There's dealing with the hurt and then there's the outward act of offering mercy. Some people today wanna to say that forgiveness is all for you, but that's, that's really just dealing maybe with the hurt. Uh, that's part one. Part two is laying down that desire to punish and picking up the mercy of God. It's giving to others what we have been freely given. That day in the elder meeting when I confessed my sin, part of the reason that I felt so convicted was that I felt like I betrayed God. I felt like I betrayed the love and mercy of God. And I think I was right to feel that way. I did and I do betray the love of God offered to me every time I withhold mercy to others. And I never want to do that again. I'm not a finished product. I, my wife is here in the first service. She, she'd tell you. But I want to re remain loyal to the love of God and represent it to everyone I come in contact with. Every time someone hurts me, every time I have a Matthew 18, 28 moment, I wanna be able to give my hurt to the Lord and give mercy to others. And it's crazy, this word compassion just sticks with me. I, it's a wild thing to me to think that God can take a sinful, needy, demanding heart and change it into one that gets hurt and offers compassion. I've heard it said that God wants children who bear the family resemblance. This is the work that he's up to in our hearts. It's to allow us to get to this place where we have compassion and we look like him. Rod challenged us last week to take up the baton from the early church to represent Christ in our world today. And there's nothing that represents Christ more in this world than mercy. Mercy is what made it possible for all of us to be a part of this family of God. It's mercy that's at the heart of the gospel. Ephesians 2.4 says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's peppered throughout the pages of scripture. Be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Luke 6 Seek justice, love mercy, 
Walk humbly with your God, Micah 6.8. And I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Hosea. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Matthew 5. And the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Mercy matters to God, and it will make the difference in our culture today. A culture that is all about vengeance, that is all about wrath, that is all about getting even, that's all about making people pay. So as the worship team comes up, I want us to look back one more time. I just found this so cool in my study this week. One more time at our study of Romans. We studied Romans 12 through 16. Does anybody remember? Rod said it in the first message. He highlighted the very first verse of that series, Romans 12.1. Do you remember what it says? I think I hear some of it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and after that, everything we've been studying this summer follows. All of it in view of God's mercy. If you take nothing else from the message this morning, I challenge you to get alone with God this week and ask him to give you a renewed view of his mercy in your life. Ask him to help you to have the capacity to be hurt and to offer mercy from your heart. To lay down our desire to punish and to offer mercy instead. Our ability, church, to do this will show the world the loving, merciful heart of God. What a great opportunity we have. Amen? Let's pray. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We've, sung, we've been singing about it. We've been reflecting on it, Lord, but we need you to to move into the spaces in our heart where we're unmerciful, where we've held bitterness, where, we've, where we haven't uh, dealt with the hurt that others have caused us so that we can offer them your mercy. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would grab hold of our hearts and that you do a powerful work today in your church. Lord, humble us with the reality that those who hurt us are no different than us. We hurt others too. And we are all in such desperate need of your help so we can love each other well. Lord, we love you. We give today to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.